Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host and decolonized wellness and body image coach, Dahlia Kinsey. I help queer folks of color heal their struggles with shame, self-acceptance through nutrition and self-care so they can live the most fierce, liberated, and joyful version of their lives. If you are a person with multiple marginalized identities, today's interview will really resonate with you. Celia Daniels is an intersectional activist. I love the way Celia explains that we're all in this together and that none of us have a singular identity. There is room for us to incorporate all of our identities into our lives and into our activism. Celia has a fascinating story. Let's get right to it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Story is fascinating. I first heard your story at a meeting that I saw advertised on LinkedIn about mm-hmm. fighting patriarchy and misogyny and discrimination in general. Have you always had this intersectional way of looking at discrimination? Because the way you presented it, how seeing things in a hierarchical way, believing in patriarchy and putting men above everyone else is part of a bigger system of problems that we have where we disrespect Mm -hmm. all kinds of people. Have you always understood how massive the problem is, but at the root of it, it's really one problem with many faces? I thank you for that question because this, the problem of discrimination started for me when I was a child. And I knew that I was different, but at the time when you come out, I think the worst time that I felt the discrimination all around me, 360 degrees was while I was, you know, someone caught hold of me as a trans person. I was walking in my ninth grade, I was walking outside and I got caught. That evening was, I would say one of the most devastating time that I ever faced discrimination and hate in its fullness. I was just 11 or 12 year old boy wearing a skirt and a top and a hijab, you know, scarf like thing around my head. But what I found was, why are they hating me without knowing me? They don't know who I am, but they hate me so much because of people like me. And that was so clear. And I lived in a beautiful community. My dad was well reputed he had a great reputation. My parents had a good reputation in that community. And I was like this. To me, the shame was so, so magnified that I did not want to bring any of this outside. So that was the first time I faced such a lot of strong discrimination. They publicly humiliated me for like 20 minutes. And I wasn't sure what the outcome would be. And I somehow I spoke in another language and ran away from that place. 
that was the first time I think I faced actual public discrimination from the public. You know, that is discrimination is two types. One is you feel sometimes within inside when you're in a place that I think I will not be comfortable here. Mm. And that is another way of kind of sensing that, oh, this is not a place that I'm going to be welcome. And that I have faced a lot. But the other side of it is when you are there and you're not expecting any uncomfortable situation and then people are reacting to the fact that you are different. And that's another um, type of discrimination that I've faced as well. So it's been been a lot. I mean, I would say it's just been continuing. And since my childhood, I would say. When you left the house that day, did you think, since you really weren't doing anything, you were just walking, that it really wouldn't be a problem, that you were just minding your own business and nothing would happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I also thought that since I was presenting as a girl, they would be more compassionate to me. You know, they wouldn't, because, you know, in India, sometimes when you're a girl, they try to kind of give you a pass. Okay, she's a girl, you know, that's fine. We will let her go. And I thought they would let me go because I was presenting as a girl, but, and I was facing the wrath of being a boy dressed like a girl, which was even more intense at the time. I wanted to have a good time that evening because that's the first time in my life I ever went out as Celia. And this was in my ninth grade. I don't know where I had the courage, but I just felt like I had to come out and I wanted to feel the air on my face. And I wanted to experience that whole environment around me and enjoy the environment. So I chose a dusk time to come out. It was almost dark. So I, I, and I didn't want to be out there in the daylight. So I chose that kind of time, but even that backfired (laughs) for Mm. me. I still remember that evening and I, I don't think I can ever forget that night when I came back home. That's when I felt like I was so afraid to live. I tried taking my life, you know, I was trying all ways of, okay, how do I do it? You know, what do I do? I I can't live like this. It's going to be hard. Was that the first time you realized that people had such hateful attitudes about trans people that your life could be in danger when you're just walking around minding your own business? I know. I have seen hijra community in India getting beaten from the train. And I actually saw during one of my scout camps that I was going to another another place. And I was in this train and I saw three trans women getting beaten. And they were literally, they were asking them to get out of the next, get out in the next station. And they were just standing there asking for money because they were begging You could just say, no, I don't have money, but they were so angry. They just pulled out their footwear and they were ready to beat Mm. them with that. And to me, I was thinking, oh my God, I am you, but I don't identify with you. And I identified with you, but I don't want to be you. This is not what I want. I I would say I was just hiding my uh, identity. I didn't want the world to see that shame. I didn't want to go through that shame. I didn't want to experience that shame. So I just sucked it up and said, you know what? I'm never going to come out because this is what is going to happen to me if I come out. So that is how, you know, people were treated in India. And once I saw that, that was in my mind all the time that if I come out, this is what's going to happen. But even in spite of that, I tried to come out, (laughs) which was like, 
okay, I'm not exactly a hijra. I'm a boy dressed like a girl. But immediately the society just took me and just put me in that category and they started treating me like, I'm going to beat you up. You don't belong here. You're the scums of the society. You know, you're the scum and you have to, we want to teach you a lesson. We want to tell your dad that you need to, you need to change. You can't do this or something like that. I know a lot of people, India feels like it's so far away. It seems like a lot of us don't know much about India, especially when it comes to gender nonconformity. I know I was under the mistaken impression that there was more flexibility there and that people understood that there's always been more than two genders. Maybe from imagery that I've misunderstood or something, I thought that it was acceptable to be trans there. I know it's a massive country, so still, I don't know what region I was thinking was more accepting. What is it really like? And how would you define what a hijra person is and what their role is? Uh, no, what you're saying is absolutely right. India was that way. Uh, seven, it's a 7,000 year old culture, you know, the Hindu mythology. And if you look at some of the Puranas or the Vedas that they call, these are all the uh, historic books that they had written in Sanskrit. There was always a fluidity in gender. Even the gods that are in the Hindu gods and the, the gods in mythology were always having a dual gender. And they had male gender and female gender. And that's how it was. And India was very gender fluid. India was very, it was living, I mean, everyone was in a spectrum at the time. But when the colonial government came in and that's when they boxed everyone into the binaries. Mm. So the Hijra community were basically revered in the temples that they were, they were blessing the children. They used to go and bless the marriage. They used to go and for any occasion, a good occasion in a person's life, in a family, they would invite the Hijra community to go and bless them because they felt like you were such a special person. You're not a male or a female. You're a very special being and we revere you for that. And that's how they were kept as a very important person. They were almost like priests and but once the whole thing got dismantled after the colonial government came in, they didn't know where to go. And that's when they went into hiding. They didn't know what to do. They were begging and they, were, they wanted to make money. And they lived in a society where they were, you know, their forefathers were probably even living very comfortably and suddenly everything was gone. And they went back into sex work, begging and you know, singing in the streets, and they were always considered as the low bottom of the food chain, I would say. That's the way the Hijra community is in India. It's like man, woman, and then you have other people, you know, casteism within India, then there's then the disabled people, and, you know, they, they categorize all that. And then if you see the bottom of the food chain, that that's when the trans people are today. Mm. And for me to be a man, to go all the way down to the bottom of the food chain <laughs> and uh, identify with that particular identity was a big shame for me. But I didn't, I was thinking maybe I can just get over it because I didn't like it. But to me, I couldn't avoid that whole process of hiding my, my identity. And that's why uh, India has always been that way. 
unfortunately, even today now, there are lots of laws that came in and they decriminalized the LGBTQ community. I would say more LGB community. Oh, okay. But um, no advancements LGBT. legally for trans people, right. not yet. No, trans folks were, were always kept in the, like you exist, but we're not going to give you importance. But when it came to LG and B, they were considered as, oh, these are people who are having sex with the same same kind and we don't want them to be that way. And we have to, you know, criminalize these people. And that's when they put this, the legal system of 377, you know, they, they, they created a law in the Supreme Court and they said, people who are having same sex relationship need to be arrested and they will be punished. And only recently that was uh, decriminalized, which was, it took a long time. But the trans community did not fall into that because they were predominantly, they would thought the transgender community is always male to female. But the female to male and gender fluid and gender non-binary, gender queer, people were hiding because they didn't know where to go. You have to either come out and become a hijra or you didn't know where to go. So there was a lot of ambiguity when you're in the transgender spectrum. And that's what I was dealing with when I was a child. That's so, so much. And then to see that the only adults that you can identify, oh, I'm kind of connected to this person are having a horrible experience. That must be really devastating. I know a lot of people who never knew there was another trans person on the planet except them when they were kids, mm -hmm. they thought they were all alone. I don't know which would be worse, knowing how the trans people in your community are being treated or thinking that you're the only one in the world. I exactly uh, felt what he said. You know, I felt like I'm the only person in the world. And if I'm dealing with this particular issue, uh, so when I was four years old, I knew I was different. I told my mom, you know, I wanted to be a girl because that's the only thing I knew at the time. I couldn't tell her I want to be a transgender. There was no media at the time. <laughs> There's no social media. Living on radio, the only audio we had was the radios in our house. And so coming out in that kind of an environment, I nobody influenced me. I didn't see anything and I said, I want to be that. It was in my head. And as soon as I was growing up, I knew, I, I clearly remember that day, I was sitting um, in the laundry basket and I was covering my head with my mom's sari and I kept telling her, I'm a girl. And my mom used to say, where are you hiding? And I'll be like, oh, I'm here. And I was such a small child, very innocent. My mom liked it. You know, she thought I was cute and was playing. I was a second child and I was a boy and my brother was a boy. So they wanted a girl and, you know, unfortunately I turned it as a boy. <laughs> But my mom didn't know that I was, she thought I was kidding. But when I was seven years old, that's when gender concept came into my head where my mom said, you cannot be wearing these skirts anymore. You know, you cannot be running around like this because you're a boy. To me, only then it hit, oh, I am actually a boy. It's, I cannot be gender fluid. Can I just wear a skirt? I kept asking my mom, can I just wear a skirt? And they said, no, you cannot. And that's when it hit me that, oh, I have to go into the closet and I didn't know what to do. It was like taking away something from you and saying, you can't do it. I didn't have an alternate at the time. And I was thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm just, my world was falling apart. And that's what happened. My gender wasn't doing justice to my anatomy. It was something within me. And I was going through gender dysphoria at the time. 
which I know now, but at the time I was the only person. I thought I'm the only boy in the planet who wants to be a girl, but doesn't like to be, you know, doesn't like boys. So I was, uh. so I still, I, I'm not interested in men. You know, I, I'm not attracted to men at all. So that's how I was. And I grew up that way thinking that, oh, then I'm really not gay. At the time, it was more of a queer sense. You could know that there were some boys who were very feminine. Of course, you, you didn't know anything about girls. Girls always had feminine. There were some of them who had tomboys or whatever. But boys, it was very clear. You know, either you're a butch boy, you have to be really masculine in what you do. You cannot be this feminine boy because if you're a feminine boy, you're dead in India. They mm. beat you up and you're gone. So to me, I felt like, oh, I have a very unique identity. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm the only person on this planet and it's probably going to go away. And that's how I started my life. I thought it's going to go away. It's so interesting that you knew your true gender so early before puberty, because I know for some kids, gender doesn't even cross their mind until puberty. So that's really fascinating. And I've, I've heard that from multiple trans people. So oh. I wonder, maybe it's being told that you can't express yourself that makes you so acutely aware of who you really are so small. Mm. Mm. That's fascinating. Well, what changed in your adulthood that made you move to the United States and start expressing yourself again? So I was uh, struggling with my gender identity uh, while I was in high school. And I sincerely prayed at the time. I used to go to the beach and pray. And I asked God saying that, God, please change me. I don't want to be a girl because it's so hard for me to be a girl. And I, I my part of my life, you know, part of my being kind of tells me that I want to be a girl, but I don't want to be a girl. I, so please change me. Nothing happened. <laughs> None of that happened. So I was like, oh my God, what's going on with me? And so there was a time when I, I, I started working and I did well in my school. I did well. I, got, I was a president scout. I got an award from the president of um, India. And, and I also got involved in music. So music kept my mind more busy and I was on stage. I was performing and I was so happy because I got the attention I wanted as a boy and all the girls were all like, oh my God, we love your music. And I was like, oh, nice. So I was enjoying all the attention at the time. And I was just gloating in that while when I come back to my room and I'll be like, oh my God, I want to wear a skirt. I really want to wear a skirt now. And what happened to all that masculinity and that boyish, you know, brash thing, it, it just, just went away. Because deep inside, I was such a soft girl, you know, like feminine girl inside, and I didn't know what to do. So I just kept on uh, living like that for a while. And outside, I was always like a brash person, you know, I was trying to be very arrogant. It's more, I would say, aggressive. That's how I thought, you know, I should express my, my masculinity so that nobody would suspect that Daniel was actually a trans person. So I completely was pretending at the time and I got a great, I got a great job. I was working for Dun & Bradstreet at the time. And I remember there was a project that came up and they wanted me to travel to the US. And just before I was 
trying planning to make my trip and I'm my parents said uh, would you like to get married because we don't know what's going to happen to your career and what you're going to do so I said sure let me check it out and uh, so I saw this beautiful girl they just gave her a profile and I met her and I immediately fell in love and we both fell in love with each other because it was natural for me I I was attracted to girls I saw her you know her lipstick and her face and the way she was she was so pretty and I was like oh my god I I really love you and I got married you know we we were so happy and we came to this country i started working in new york at the time and i was working for some of the fortune 100 companies which was uh, like erisco and uh, ims and lots of these big 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 names and i was doing well at work so i started focusing on my work and for me work kind of kept me away from uh, thinking about celia Mm. It, it so that i i didn't have to focus too much on it so i my work was almost like packed within 12 hours a day and i would just sit in the office and i'll keep on working late and i'll come home at 8 o'clock in the night have dinner and then go to sleep my wife was not very happy but i said hey i have the weekends for you weekdays don't don't bother me you but, mentioned that you saw her in a book so did your parents pick out like lots of possible suitable partners and then present them to you It was uh, an arranged marriage. <laughs> I didn't know they would give you options, though. I thought oh, you yeah. they would be like, "Hey, we found this one person." No, they. You know, it's like, it's actually like some friends arranging a date for you, okay. and it's just that the parents are arranging a date for you, saying that, "Okay, you don't have time to find a girl. We we found a girl. You know, the good parents. Would you like to check her out? This is our picture. This is our." profile so they kept all that for me and I, so I was like okay let me check it out that's uh, it's arranged marriage is more almost like e-harmony but it's with people fun. who actually know you doing all the legwork that actually yeah. sounds like a pretty good idea it sometimes works sometimes it's you know it's mostly post married romance you start your entire life and your love only after you get married <laughs> so you're like locked up no option you can't escape <laughs> You so mentioned you went to Fortune 500 company, yeah. lots of work hours. Lots of work hours. I was working really hard and I was doing very well at work. And my boss was very impressed with what I was doing and they sent me to higher uh, positions. They kept on moving me and I was a partner in the company too. And this was a company where it's not like a small company. It's almost like 200,000 people. The CEO of the company, he knew me personally. because i had started in, with this company and he knew me very personally and always put me in positions where i could really take the company forward i was managing a large teams i was implementing huge projects i was handling millions of dollars and i ran the life sciences healthcare in the west coast at the time and i remember and many times i i wanted to come out and i remember while i was traveling from state to state i would implement the business i would go and uh, put a strategy for them it could be sap it could be enterprise wide crm activities it could be a lot of enterprise wide uh, solutions that we presented and i had large teams back in india and europe and north america sometimes in argentina as well so i managed teams and what happened was you know i was so successful and i was kind of getting to a point where i could not i was not taking care of celia so my gender dysphoria was slowly acting up so what i would do is i would give a business presentation and we will win a deal we will have a happy hour i'll just come back to my room i will slip on a maxi skirt or a maxi dress 
I will put on makeup, I'll put on my uh, wig and everything and I'll sit in front of the mirror and I'll just cry. Hmm. Because gender dysphoria was so intense and I didn't know how to handle it. And I would just think to myself, I just want to be this girl. You know, why can't I just be this girl? Why am I being someone else? And I don't want to do it because it's, and I was afraid to come out. I was an executive. Everyone like, was, oh, Daniel is a great person. And at the same time, I was always struggling inside. Personally, I was struggling. Professionally, I was thriving. I was doing very well. I had stocks. I had built my I mean, I had a house in California. I was very successful. My wife was super happy because, you know, she said, I think I made the right decision. So I came out to her. I told her, sweetheart, I'm going through some problem. And then this was in 2004. Professionally, that's how I came to this country. And I came as an immigrant at the time in 97. And I started working for these companies. And I was was quite successful in, in what I did. Did it cross your mind that maybe this was a place where Celia could live? Absolutely. That's what I was hoping. I lived in different parts of the country. And whenever I go to a particular state, let's say I was in Phoenix, and then from, during my business trips, I traveled all over the country. Whenever I go, I'll always have a Celia suitcase. It'll have Celia's clothes in it, well-pressed and very clean. And as soon as I get to my room, I will have my meetings the next day. But that night, I will always go the previous evening so that I could spend some time as Celia. And that was my personal time. And I was so happy. (laughs) You know, I was so happy just looking at myself. And I was like, God, why is this like this? You know, I I, I didn't even find that happiness. Even if you give me a million dollars, I wasn't that happy. But like, okay, great. But to me, uh, just looking at myself as this person in front of my mirror is actually me, the true person. And that was uh, so I would say, uh, so fulfilling and it was so joyful. To me, I wanted that joy. I was thinking to myself, what do I do for me to hold on to Celia? Though I'm struggling as Daniel and Celia, what do I do? And I then realized that there were times when I did not want to transition because I, I liked being Daniel in my life and I did not hate being Daniel or being who I was as a, as a, in my birth gender. But I preferred that my preferred gender, you know, I lived, I wanted to live in my preferred gender, though I was struggling in my birth gender. And as soon as I go to my preferred gender when I'm silly, I used to be happy and I'll be spending a whole, you know, night I'm just dancing in the room or watching something, do some, get some food. I'll walk around the hotel lobby. People, you know, even if they knew I was trans, they didn't bother much, depending on the state. There are some states where I got you know, I'll get a cat call or sometimes people will say, hey, faggot, you know, they'll yell mm. at me. And I remember in Pennsylvania, I was walking on the on the road, um, which is in a, in, a, in a side street. There was a truck that came with a lot of boys sitting in the back. And I remember they just looked at me and they started yelling at me, hey, faggot. And I was, I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't know how to react. I just looked at them and smiled and I walked away. And now I realized that those are the kind of people we're actually scaling the walls of the Capitol building. Yes. Because they were not good people. I didn't know what kind of flags they were flying at the time in Pennsylvania. But I, you know, for me, I've been in places where I could have got hurt. I could have got killed. But I was, you know, for some reason, I was, I didn't know much about 
what was going on around the hate. And when people call me faggot, I would be like, it's okay, you know, you're calling me faggot. I'm fine with it. Because I that's what I went through in India. If I go back to India, I had the same way. I was treated like a child when I was uh, in my ninth grade. Uh, I think many, after many years, when I went recently to India, there was a man in a bicycle and my friend and I were just walking in Pondicherry, which was one of the streets. It's a, it's a great city, highly, you know, well-advanced city. And he called me, you know, in a very derogatory word in India, in Tamil. And I thought to myself, even after 30, 40 years, nothing has changed in India. Hmm. What can, how can we change it? The person is calling me the same thing. And while I was a child, they did the same thing and they're doing the same thing. And they're going to keep doing to the younger generation. So I started thinking about how do we educate the parents so that they won't kick the children from their homes. <clears throat> so that's another part of me, you know, which is going on. But I, I was struggling deep inside and I was traveling to all these places. But at the same time, there was some discrimination in certain states like North Carolina, when I go to the bathrooms and people will be like, hmm. So I, I had a little bit of a passing privilege because I, you know, I sometimes, I just make sure that I present myself nicely. But there are times when I did not pass as a girl and I would be so scared because I would be standing in a line with the women to get into the restroom. And uh, there will be children looking at me, you know, like, who are you? <laughs> and I'd be so scared. I didn't want them to say, mom, that's a man or something. I'd be like, so scared. I'd be like, I don't want to say anything, sweetie. And it was hard. I mean, there were lots of times it, it's been very hard. And in Arizona, I faced a man who yelled at me saying, you know, go back to your country. Not mm. because I was trans. It's because I was an Indian person. I was not an American because he thought I was from Iraq. <laughs> he thought I was maybe from Iran or some Iranian woman or something, you know, he said, oh go back to your country, go back to Iraq. And I was like, I cannot imagine traveling to that many different parts of the United States mm -hmm. as someone who moved here, because I am afraid to travel to some areas. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at least I have a vibe for places where I've heard stories and places I might want to avoid places where I shouldn't travel in the evening. Mm -hmm. So oh, I'm just so glad nothing happened to you because you see that these people, their numbers are higher than I realized even. I knew they were everywhere, but I just didn't know. I mean, this previous administration really opened my eyes about the numbers. Right. Yeah. That's, that's basically what made me an activist, I would say. So when I started coming out and that's when I felt like in 2013 I came out in my community in California that's when I felt like this is California and I see a lot of hate in my own community because they called me a man in a dress who needs medical help the Christian community called me a man in a dress who needs medical help because I told my story in a church the first time I told Celia's coming out story in a church and I said it the way it was so vulnerable. I, I told them that I'm struggling and I did not want this, but this is how God made me. And I'm just going to honor what God made me and I'm going to try to live my life the way God made me. And I, I cannot change it. And I was so vulnerable. And the backlash I faced from the 
the news, a local newspaper was so horrific. And that's when and I decided. And why would they cover it in the news? They asked me if I they they could come and uh, take my story, you know. Wow, and then covered it like that. Yeah, it, it was a big, uh, almost like a half a page, a huge page. And it was in the local newspaper and they called, you know, Celia is coming out and blah, blah, blah. You know, lots of the entire story came out there. And then a lot of people wrote to the editors and uh, letter to the editors. And they said, this is, this is, this person is not a trans, you know, this person is just making it up. These are these kind of people are, they need medical help. They're not really trans. And even if you're trans, they don't like you. You know, they, they don't like it no matter what. If you belong to the LGBTQ spectrum, you are, and this is in Simi Valley where Reagan was buried here, Nancy Reagan and Reagan. And in this place, when I, when I was coming out, this is the kind of backlash I faced. So I went, I took the newspaper and my, my friend and the friends in the church were saying, you know, don't worry, Celia, things will change. Don't worry about it. And I was so angry and I went back to my car and said, I can't be this vulnerable. You know, what am I going to do? I'm just going to go and stand in the streets and say, just beat me if you want to beat me up. You know, I'm, I'm okay with it. I was so angry and I was, I was just frustrated because I didn't know what else to do. I can't change myself and this is who I am. And I was sitting in my car and there was just, my tears were rolling my eyes. And then I thought to myself, I can either keep, keep crying like this or do something about it. And that's when I thought, hmm, let me do something. I saw in a newspaper clip, there was not a newspaper, I would say it's in, in Facebook, there was a note saying, you know, there was a gun violence or gun control, a protest that's happening in my community. And I said, let me go there. So I went to Celia and I stood there. I stood for immigration rights. I stood for gun rights. I stood for gun control. And then I stood for healthcare issues. I stood for all kinds of issues. And so I, I actually came out while I was fighting for trans rights, I became a human rights activist. So HRC, uh, they gave me an award in 2019, Celia's you know, service to the community and in, in, in where I lived in Ventura County. It's because what happened is, I think all of us have an activism in our, in our body, in our life. You know, we are activists. There's not, we just need some, a little bit of spark to activate that activism which we don't even know. And it, it could happen anytime in our lives. And this was a time in 2013 that ignited, you know, that kind of created that ignition. And I started, and what from then on, clicked? I couldn't go back. What know? did you understand? What happened when you went through that in the church and you were so vulnerable and you shared your truth? What clicked that made you realize you want to do something that you want to actively change the world around you. I faced uh, two kinds of problems. One is the community by itself, you know, cisgender community in, in my community were not able to understand me. They said, you know, you're trans and you're going to hell. Simple period. And then the transgender community were looking at me and saying, Celia, you need to transition you need to completely transition. And I said, I don't want to transition. This was before Caitlyn Jenner came out. You know, this is like much before that. And I said, no, I don't want to transition. And they said, then you're fake. You're just a cross-dresser. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I'm not a cross-dresser. For me, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm having a gender problem. I'm not having a dressing issue. <laughs> <laughs> I have enough time to dress. I don't have a problem dressing up. It's my gender issue. It's something which is internal, which is, it's just showing up externally. And that's what I was trying to help them understand. They would never get it. And I was facing a backlash with both the trans community and the cisgender community. And I started thinking to myself as to where do I go if I want to be Celia? If I go to the bars, people treat me like a prostitute. They ask me for a blowjob. If I go to the trans groups, they keep talking about HRT and uh, they keep telling me that I need to transition. I need to leave my wife and my family and be my authentic self. And when I go to a church, I cannot even go to a church because I feel like I'll be kicked out of the church. Are they gonna look at me in, a, in, in the most evil way that I will probably be burnt? like Sodom and Gomorrah, whatever. And then the other side was the the, the, the the cisgender community that was just ignoring you, you know, just completely ignoring you. And here I was a business professional, well reputed in my company, in my community as Daniel. But when I was Celia, the whole world, the ecosystem just changed around me. It was like full of hate. When it, when it was Daniel, nothing. I didn't see any of this. I had a great life. I was, you know, I was flying my, my, I mean, a great life. I mean, I would say my daughter, lived, you know, she's very happy. My, my wife is very happy. And I, I couldn't live that way. And I was, I knew that there's something that I need to do. At the time, I, the first thing that hit me, the first very one thing that hit me was I could get killed because of who I am. And till then, I never thought about it. I just thought discrimination is fine. People yell at me. I can ignore these people. I went for a Transgender Day of Remembrance in 2011 in West Hollywood. I saw the pictures of trans people who were tied and dragged, and they were the flesh came off, and you know they were mm. killed in a horrific way. They were burnt alive, and I was looking at these pictures and I was thinking, "Oh my God, this is America." And this is happening to people of color. Hello, I'm a brown person. Of course, a lot happened. More than 85% of them are black community, but there were things happening to people like me as well. And I said, you know what, what do I do? How can I save a trans person's life? What do I do to save one person this year? I wanna see the numbers go down. At the time it was probably 29 trans women were killed in the US trans people, not just trans women, but other folks too. And then I started started doing some activism. I said, you know, what do I do? Where do I educate? Where do I start? And there was a call in the police station. They said, we just want to hear transgender folks' voice. Would you like to come? So I went to LAPD. I went there. This was way back in 2013 or 2014. I went to LAPD and I said, hey, I'm a gender non-binary person. If you arrest, if you if you stop me, um, my ID is going to say Daniel. It's not going to say Celia. I'm going to look so different. And the and I was trying to help them understand that there are people like me who are so scared too. They're nervous, you know, when you get caught. And it's not because we've done anything wrong, but we were educating the police too at the time. I went to Hollywood Police Station, LAPD. I tried going to Simi Valley Police Station. I called the sheriff's office and they didn't want to take the call because they were like, we're not going to listen to you. So Oxnard, I went through my friends and we made some changes there. My friend, uh, they all, police department. 
went to the schools, spoke in schools, the school board, you know, they, well, how do we change things, you know, change the bullying and issues happening in school board? I went to the colleges that were young people and I started talking about my life and about transgender community. I went to the psychiatric community and since I'm in healthcare and life sciences, I understood about some of these, the, the policy changes and how certain diagnosis codes were rejected by the insurance companies because I worked with insurance companies. And so I started looking at it and I said, you know, how do we change these things and make it more, more, uh, how do we educate my doctor? You know, my doctor didn't know what is gender dysphoria. <laughs> I had to educate him. So I started educating folks and I started thinking, okay, if they don't know, they need to know. So I'm going to educate them. So I started doing it and I started finding organizations and network that was already doing work in that space, but they didn't have a trans representation like healthcare. I went for a healthcare conference where I was the only trans person out of 200 people. And I just put my hand and said, I have a question. What do you do for the trans community? And everybody looking around me and they're taking picture because they have never seen a trans person before in my community. And I was like, okay, so here we go. This is how it's gonna be. So I said, you know what? You wanna take a picture, go for it. I, I held all those banners and I post for the pictures. They gave it to Kamala Harris uh, in 2015. <laughs> They took a picture of me and they gave it to her uh, saying that, you know, we are not fighting. I went to the Democratic Club. I went to the uh, League of Women Voters. I went to the uh, county clerk's office and I told them that, how do you, how as a person of gender non-binary person can vote today? You know, what are the systems that are there? Because my ID will not match and you know, you can't tell me you can, you know, you cannot vote. So I did a lot, whatever I could put my hands on, I started doing it. And I went to my own company and I started educating them, my clients. And I was working at the time and I could not take um, the tech industry was very bad <laughs> in terms of diversity. Let me put it, even today we have a problem. So I was working in the tech industry and I, I didn't know how to come out. So after 20 years of working for this company, I decided to come out. I, I gave my papers and they didn't want to take my resignation at all. So I, they gave me salary for six months without without even any work. This was in 2015. So I was working and I was trying to do a lot of things. And uh, then I quit and joined another company. And then I quit and joined another company. And finally I decided, you know what? I need to do something on my own. And I have to, I wanna be Celia. So I tried looking for a job as Celia and nobody gave me a job. I had, my resume was so good. Mm. As a professional who understands business and IT. But the, Unfortunately, I would say the way people look at diversity is I will hire you, Celia, but I, I have a job for you in the corner, you know, go sit there because I just want to hire you. And that's how it is. And I said, no, I'm, I'm a senior director in a company. I was three levels below the CEO. Will you give me the same job if I'm Celia? And I said, sorry, our board is full of white people. You know, we don't think you can fit in there. I was like, okay, <laughs> how can we change it? So I, I saw the problem and I didn't yell at all these people because I'm not wasting my energy on these people. And I said, okay, how do I change your company? What do I need to do to change your company? And they said, keep on telling your story, Celia. Keep on telling what you're doing. And that's what I started doing. Started talking about my experiences because some of them were horrific experiences right from the time I got 
I mean, I got abused in the bars. My family didn't understand. My wife was like, don't dress up like a girl. You're a man. You are a businessman. You're so successful. Uh, I was going through all that. And then my daughter was growing up. And 15, when she was 15 years old, she found out her dad was wearing a sari. It was so intense at the time. And I didn't know how to handle it. And on top of it, I had a lot of work-related stress. And then I had personal stress with all this going on. So wherever I went, I did not know what to do. I was just, you know, break, collapsing inside. And I kept telling my wife that, sweetheart, I really have a problem. But now I knew exactly what to tell her. I told her, sweetheart, I have gender dysphoria. And she said, what is that? She said, I, there are one out of 200 people like me who are born in a gender, but they prefer to be in another gender. People call it transgender because for lack of a better word, it's like moving from one gender to the other. Uh, according to the medical terminology, I have gender dysphoria and this is what I'm going through. So my wife accepted me now after 17 years and uh, you know we are married for 23 years. This is gonna be 24th year. My daughter to whom I came out when she was 15 years old, she accepted me in 25 minutes. My wife took 17 years. So yeah. I understand when companies, when spouses, when parents don't get it, it's okay, but we have to be consistent. And that's what I did. I did with a lot of grace with a lot of patience. And I learned to be patient with people and uh, because I am a very impatient person too. <laughs> but I learned patience when I, was, when I became Celia. So Celia is very natural to me. And uh, Celia changed my, my life in, in a lot of ways. Because I was getting to a point where I was just like, I, I didn't know how to handle myself. And now my daughter is 21 years old and she's the most supportive person uh, of her dad. You know, I told my wife, I'm always going to be a husband. You know, I, I don't know these gender norms, how it's going to work with people. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop explaining to people about our relationship, but I will always be a husband because you are a mom and I'm going to be the dad and I will always be a dad. <laughs> My daughter calls me dad. So that rejection that you face from the trans community, not really rejection, but that judgment that you're not trans enough yeah. as you moved forward and saw the terminology and that there are lots of non-binary people. Do you feel now that you're more gender fluid? Mm -hmm. And so you feel comfortable sometimes as Daniel or really you just don't go out as Daniel? No, I, I do. I do. I'm Daniel at times because I don't hate my birth gender. There are people in the spectrum who are different. You know, they sometimes identify as gender neutral where they don't want to be male or female. They want to be identified as gender, gender non-binary. I'm kind of there because I don't identify completely as Daniel or I don't, you know, but I mostly lean towards Celia a lot because that was a shame that I was hiding for many years. And so when I'm Celia, I'm really happy. You know, it's like, so 80% of my life, I'm Celia. And there is some percentage of my life that I'm Daniel. You know, I, I still play uh, the guitar with my wife. I go for hiking. And I'm uh, Daniel for her at the time. There are times when, you know, I think I have learned to create a balance in my life because I didn't hate my male gender. It was easy for me to kind of incorporate that within my own family. So there are times when I'll be talking to my wife like uh, Celia as a third person. I'll just tell her, hey, I need to wash my clothes, you know, Celia's clothes. 
okay, Celia has a conference call and she needs to be out. <laughs> so my wife will understand. So it's, it's, it's kind of got into our routine now that it's so simple. You know, sometimes gender is such a fluid thing. It's a, it's, it's a spectrum. Yeah. And I just love to express in, so today I, I sometimes do as Celia, sometimes as gender non-binary and sometimes as Daniel also. So I can explore the entire spectrum. Sometimes I feel like I want to be gender non-binary. I just wear something different and I look very gender neutral. People won't know. Even then they will call me ma'am. <laughs> They'll be like, hello, ma'am. And I'll probably have a little bit of stubbles and they'll still call me ma'am. I'll be thinking, okay, I don't, I don't want to explain to them that yeah, I should be called as they, them, but that's okay. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's and you've been through so much to find exactly your own voice, to find exactly how you want to be living and how you want to present your gender with almost no one modeling. Well, no one actually modeling this for you. You just followed your internal compass. Now that you're where you are, do you ever feel like when you were in church and you identified that this is exactly who God wanted you to be? Does it ever resonate with you that back in the day, these third gender or non-binary people were religious leaders? Does it feel like it's part of your calling to be someone who helps people understand how to make the world better and how to be better people? Does it seem like maybe that's part of your heritage as a non-binary person? Absolutely. I think I remember the time I used to sit on the beach and ask God the question, why did you make me like this? Why can't you, why, why can't I be a normal boy? You know, why did you make me this way? And the question that I was asking right from the childhood, I never got an answer. And I kept on asking this question for many years. I got married and I had a child. And even then, I remember I went to Vegas and I was I, I had a business trip and I I wore a long skirt and I was driving in Vegas. I came back to my hotel and I started crying because I was like, God, why did you make me like this? The answer that I got at the time was, this is the way you're made. You know, you cannot change the way you are. And I looked at Psalms and it said very clearly, I've known you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I was thinking, if you made me like this, then you have to take care of me because I don't know how to handle my life. And, you know, it says in your words beautifully. And even the Bible is full of characters. There were a lot of people who were actually intersex. There were a lot of eunuchs in Bible. And these are characters who don't have a gender at all. Because when you castrate someone, and they still call them he in Bible. When Philip was called to uh, attend to the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts chapter, they mentioned as he. And I was thinking, you know, those are, they actually probably gender non-binary. <laughs> Bible is full of characters who are gender non-binary. And they never talked about it because it's been a part of the culture in every culture. It's, it's been there. It's always there in every culture around the world. Native American have five genders and, you know, they're in India, they have three genders. Now they're considering as one. And I, I thought to myself as to why do we create such an animosity without understanding? Mm 
it's just that people know. I, I don't think the religious leaders are idiots. <laughs> they know. They know. They just avoid going to that space because they know that they don't have enough knowledge to be able to accept that. They don't want yeah. that knowledge, which is bigotry. You know, it's like, I don't want to know about it. I think you're all going to hell. And that's about it. And they just brush it off. But they're brushing off a lot of people who are actually looking for love, who are looking for acceptance, who are looking for truth. And those are, and a lot of people are dying. So in my, in my being, I thought, if I can save one trans person from, getting, from committing suicide or getting murdered, and then I have done my job. And if I can show one trans person about the love of God, and that's what is important. I don't have to preach to anybody. And so I started doing what I was, you know, what I, what I, what I was meant to do. And I felt, I told my wife uh, that, sweetheart, this is my calling. Mm. I didn't know what I was planning to do. You know, I, I, I took Sunday school. I do worship also. I do, I'm a worship leader in my church. I, I, I lead worship. Uh, I lead the youth fellowship in the church. But the funny part is people don't. When I just came out as Daniel, it was like, oh, you're out of the church. You know, you're, you're going out somewhere. And even if you bring those conversations saying that God loves everybody, even if you are black, white, or I'm just singing that uh, Jesus loves the little children. <laughs> but anybody, any color, any sexual orientation or gender identity, it doesn't matter. God loves them because that's what it is. And that's the what church leaders have to listen to but unfortunately they made it very political they took bible and made it political like the slavery mm -hmm. they made it all political they made it systemically a discriminatory thing and they don't want to go there and that's exactly what they're doing with the lgbtq community today and i i see that happening again the civil rights issues are happening again and again and I was watching that one night in Miami, the four folks were talking about it, you know, like Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and the two other folks. I was listening to that. I was listening to all these dialogues and I started learning a lot. And I, I was thinking to myself, and every time I'll tell people, when you have a bathroom issue, when you want to make a change in your company, start from the bathroom. Hmm. Go and watch Hidden Figures. That's happening again. It's not happening to the Black woman, but it's happening to trans women trans men and we are asked to go out somewhere and you know or you're not even allowed into the restroom because you're different and they think you're going to steal somebody or scare somebody you know it's it's so that's how they made it everything political so there is a lot of education that needs to happen and to me i look at the community i look at these churches because sometimes these people are governing this loss especially in the previous administration a lot of them were governed by Mike Pence and the church community, the evangelical community, were influencing the government. And to me, that was a big, I would say it's a big ticking time bomb there. And then I saw the corporate community just reacting to it. They just react to everything. You know, they are not even proactive. Right. I've seen big corporations like $27 billion companies winning, getting these numbers and corporate index, equality index. But are they really retaining their employees who are different? You know, a black community or trans community, Asian community, veteran community. 
How many people have you hired? How many people have you retained? Those right. numbers are not available. You know, you, they just hire you, but that people can't so stay. That is true. It, I really have noticed lately a lot of people who are claiming they're interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's very performative and it's more like a personal improvement project for their white employees. It's not about making the environment safe and welcoming for everyone. It's still centered on the white employees and their experience. And yeah, I don't think the retention rates are really there for the people of color and the queer folks. Yeah, and I that that will change. But to me, I sometimes may not even my when I was talking to my wife last week, I was telling her I'm so frustrated with all these policies, and you know they always keep on hounding the trans people. Mm. And she said, just keep doing what you're doing because you may not even see during your lifetime. But that's what the change will come. But we have to keep doing what we're doing. I'm so glad I have um, a beautiful family <laughs> where my wife is finally understood what I was going through. But unfortunately, not many trans people have the privilege of such understanding family and uh, community. I know as we speak, one of two of my friends are going through divorce. And it's it's heartbreaking because it's just the fact that they don't understand. Right. And they can't, they can't. I, and it's not that, hey, I should have known when we got married. No, it's not that because I was not wanting to do this at all. <laughs> when I got married, I thought it's going to go away. And a lot of people like me, when I came to this country, when I was a child, I thought that I was the only person. But now I found that an entire community, an entire world, there are people like me from Thailand, from Arabia, even, even in Saudi Arabia or everywhere in Europe and Australia, Netherlands, Argentina, you just name it. There are people who are different and everyone is going through the same issue. So I, I just... To me, that is more important as to how do we change it, but we have to keep working on it. And community change needs to happen. Change in the companies need to happen. And the diversity has to happen at the boardroom to the bathroom. Yeah. And only then we will know that the companies are truly making a change. And I, I, I remember questioning HRC. I, one of my clients, they had a hundred person corporate equality index. And I I happened to be in that client um, group and I was asking, so how many LGBTQ folks do you have? They said, oh, we have like uh, 200 office. I said, how many trans do you have? I said, oh, we actually have one trans woman, but she's, she's in a stealth mode. And I said, really? Mm-hmm. And your corporate equality index is 100%. And they said, Celia, we're still changing. And it's you know, I, I said, you're changing, but not fast enough. Because if you've got a CEI score 100%, you're just looking at these numbers to make your recruiting much better. It's a branding issue for you. You know, you're just branding your company. You're not really making a change. They didn't want to hear that from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I told them very clearly, look, I can help you change. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I did was I joined uh, Transcan work as in the executive board. They invited me to be a part of the executive board. And uh, when I joined Transcan work executive board, we also changed the di- we brought in diversity even in Transcan work. Oh, um, wonderful! Within the executive board, so 
which is actually interesting. And we also help in changing the companies now. We talk to the companies and tell them that let's truly change your company. You know, let's not do it for branding. <laughs> let's truly change. So I, it, it's just happening, Dalia, but it's going to take a while. You know, it's going to take a while. But I hope these changes come in soon because uh, it's been 200 years since we had the civil rights issues for the Black community. Right. And you, you see how that. that's going. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it could be faster. Right from the Stonewall riots, which is in 69 to now. I, you know, I, nothing has changed to me. Uh, yeah, there are people who are fighting, but there's no unity within the trans community. There's no unity within the LGBTQ community. So we all have to stand up together and build that allyship. So that's what I keep telling them that don't say that the, a gay man or a, a lesbian woman doesn't understand your problem. Teach them. Help them understand your issues. And once we do that, we need to build this allyship as the LGBTQ community. So that's what I did in my community. I, I started, I, I'm the vice, yeah, I'm the vice president of Stonewall Democrats. And they wanted me to be the you know vice president, the, the president. And I said, no, I, I want someone else to take that role. And so we kind of, you know, I'm working with the gay and the lesbian community and uh, the bisexual and the pansexual community, intersex community, you know, what, let's just all come to the table, no matter who we are, it's important for us to form that unity. And then we have cisgender people. And let's also look at the intersectionalities within our own selves, because I'm, I don't want to be just known as a trans person. You know, I have a child, I'm a parent, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a musician, I'm a hiker, I'm a blogger, I'm a photographer. There's a lot of things that I want to be known as. I don't want to be just known as Celia, the trans. No, I don't want to go down that way. Right. Yeah, of course, it is one of my identities, but not the most important identity. And that's what is important, you know, for us to change in the companies. This helps so much. The point that your wife made that you stick with it because we don't know how much what we're doing right now is going to create change for the people who come after us. So just thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Where can people find you online? So I'm on uh, LinkedIn, Celia Sandhya Daniels. And I'm also uh, on Instagram and Facebook. It's uh, Celia San, S-A-N, uh, Daniels. Sandhya is an Indian word. It's more like the dusk or dawn or something. I mean, it's more dusk, I think, Sandhya. It's a Sanskrit name, and I really love that word. And I said, thought, you know, I need to keep it. So Celia Sandhya Daniels. If you just Google Celia Daniels, you will just find me because I've. <laughs> my friend recently told me I just Googled, and he was like, "You're all over the place." And I said, "I hope it's in a good way." <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, this has been just beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Thank you so much for having me. And I really want to, you know, join hands with you. And thank you for this platform. We are in this together. You know, it's not about just Celia. It's all about us and, you know, all the issues we are going through. Yeah. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate this time and uh, the effort you've taken to amplify this platform. <laughs> thank you. I was so moved by the way Celia described surviving years of experiencing gender dysphoria. And even though Celia didn't use the term gender euphoria in the interview, you could really hear it. That feeling of 
total bliss when your external presentation matches what you've been wanting to present to the world the whole time. I also really resonated with this idea of being told you're not queer enough. You're not trans enough. You're not non-binary enough. I love how she models for us that you don't have to allow yourself to be shoved into another box just after you escaped the box the culture you were born into placed you in. What's most important is that you radically accept yourself so that you can prioritize what is true and right for you. As Celia explained, being non-binary looks different on different people and there's room for all of us to be ourselves. The process of coming out to yourself is step one to being able to do that. This is just such a great story of how long that process can be for some of us and how you could take your power back by being part of the solution, being involved in activism or advocating for other people from your same community and from other communities that you observe experiencing some kind of stigma, bigotry, or abuse. I love everything about this conversation. Definitely look for her on LinkedIn, connect with them on social media. Before we close today, I just want to remind you, I have coaching spots available in my one-on-one program. My coaching is focused on helping you come out to yourself in every way that's meaningful to you, practicing radical self-acceptance and learning to connect to your body in such a profound way that it literally becomes a divining tool guiding you to the right decisions for you, the right relationships, and helping you stand firm in being your authentic self. Today's episode, I'm going to close with a song that Celia graciously shared with us of them singing as both Daniel and Celia. For me, this is some kind of non-binary joy that's difficult for me to explain just seeing another gender fluid person out in the world living fully as themselves and allowing only their internal compass to dictate their actions it just brings me so much joy thank you again for listening i'll see you next time
Hopes that she'll never make Couldn't see him anywhere Soon pass away. Lost can never 